Okay, what are we doing? A turn in your Bible to Psalm 45, please. This is our final psalm in our Finding Christ in the Psalm series. And the only reason we're stopping here is I wanted to hit 18, and I reached my logical conclusion of, of the plan that I had worked. Um, it's not as if we can't find any more psalms with Christ. Uh, we could find a lot more. Um, but this is our, our final uh, psalm series in the series. And then next week, Lord willing, if the Lord gives me a next week, my intention is to look at the book of Numbers. There are 20, excuse me, 36 chapters in the book of Numbers. My intention is somewhere between 40 and 50 sermons will uh, complete the book of Numbers. That at least is my plan. Psalm 45, beginning to read with a title, which is actually um, inspired by God. For the choir director, according to the Shoshanim, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart overflows with a good theme. I will address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. In your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All of your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. And at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention, incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, then your king, the king will desire your beauty, because he is your lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions, will follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They'll enter into the king's palace. In the place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would pour out your tender mercy upon me as you herald Jesus Christ as your spokesman, as the minister, the servant of the word. I pray, Lord, that the words of my lips, the meditation of my heart, would be acceptable. And, um, and would be according to Scripture. You, Lord God, would be glorified and your people would be edified if there are anyone that hears this sermon who is not converted, um, that you would use this sermon, um, Holy Spirit, uh, for the conversion, uh, for the gathering in of uh, one sinner uh, to salvation, to the Savior. Build us up in Christ, Lord. Encourage every, every soul. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The method that I've been following, and I'm going to follow it, I'm going to follow the similar method with a little bit of a twist. My method is to pick a particular psalm that I can find, a, a, that there's a mention of Christ in it, that I can find an express or explicit 
statement in the New Testament using that text that says this is Christ. So not something by inference or logical deduction, which I think is legitimate. The Bible teaches both by express statements and by necessary or logical consequence is the language of our secondary standard. That means it's, it's, it's logically necessary. The truth of the Trinity, that kind of thing. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit ascribed divine names, titles, attributes, and worship. And the Bible says God is one. So the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are one. That's, that's logical or necessary deduction or consequence and, and express statements. I am the way, the truth, and the light. And so I am going to look for express statements that say this is in reference to Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to follow that. And um, what we're looking at here, and you may know this, just if, if it says it in your, if the editors put it, my, my editor, this is not inspired, it's correct, but it's not inspired, a song celebrating the king's marriage. It's about the marriage of the king. And so the king is royal, and he's marrying a woman, and she becomes royal because of relationship to the king. Um, in the Bible, we'll say, both in Exodus chapter 19, and then it's reiterated in First Peter, I think chapter 1, maybe chapter 2, and then the book of Revelation. Christ has saved us to make us a whole entire nation of royal priests. So this is the, the royal king who's getting married, and we will be considered royal. Not because inherently we are royal. Inherently, we are the woman in um, uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, where we're anything but royal. But we take his name, and we take his yoke, and his royalty becomes our royalty. And so what we're looking at here is um, much more than a song of human love. There are men that say, well, Jesus is not here. I will tell you that without faith, the Bible is a closed book. I just watched this afternoon a debate between a man, John Lennox, He's more along the lines of C.S. Lewis. I think he's an Anglican. I think he's an Irishman from his accent. And he was debating Richard Hawkins or Dawkins, one of those fellows, on the existence of God and then also on creation. And um, it was very interesting. And I felt sad for the atheist because the, the other fellow was doing a fine job presenting the truth of the Bible. And the atheist was very angry. And uh, I thought he was being pig-headed. But more than being pig-headed, he's just blind. He's just blind. So, so without faith, you're going to come here and say, no, I don't, I don't see Jesus at all. But the Bible says that in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. The Bible says those without faith, it is impossible for them to understand the word of God. Even 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a veil lies over your heart and your mind. So it has nothing to do with intellectual cognitive ability. You may have an exceedingly sharp fellow or gal, but without faith, they're not finding Christ here. They don't see that they're sinners, they don't, they don't understand the law, and they don't understand the gospel. So without faith, the best you could do is come here and say, well, this is a song about a king getting married to some women, woman. And what many, I think, people without faith come to the conclusion, oh, this is Solomon. Solomon is singing about this wonderful marriage with one of his wonderful wives. And just as an aside, sometimes people use Solomon. Well, you know, Solomon says this and that about marriage, which is true when he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he's writing the book of Proverbs, for example. Every word that he says in Proverbs is exactly right. Solomon is not the kind of fellow that you want to emulate yourself after in the, as regards to the business of marriage. 
I mean, he, he, he was an utter train wreck. God used a man that was an utter train wreck that didn't follow his own advice because it's not his advice he's giving, it's God's advice. So Spurgeon said, if the best that you can see here is Solomon and one of his thousand wives and not Christ and his singular wife, he says you are spiritually short-sighted. And he actually goes on to say, if you see both Christ and Solomon, you're cross-eyed. Um, if you ever want to get one commentary on the, the, the book of Psalms, I recommend Spurgeon. Because when you get his three-volume set or five-volume set or whatever, it's like getting 20 commentaries on the Psalms. So it, what we're looking at is Christ as the bridegroom. And for the church, I mean the elect church, not, not the goat among the sheep, but the goats, believers. We are the bride. We are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the method. We'll look for the counterpart in the New Testament that says, this is Christ. Afterwards, I'm going to change my method. Heretofore, what I've been doing is finding the counterpart. Let's just say um, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then I'll find that in the gospel records, Christ on the cross. And then I'll deal with that specific doctrine. Obviously, the estate of humiliation. Obviously, the atoning death. The cry of dereliction. So I, I take the counterpart, I deal with that text, and I address the doctrine directly. What I'm going to do tonight is show us from the New Testament that this psalm is about Christ, and then I'm going to change my method a little bit. I want to deal thematically with the overarching subject that's being represented by Psalm 45, which is the business of marriage. So specifically in that righteous king section, the writer to the Hebrews quotes this and says, that's Jesus. But he's dealing with not specifically the marriage aspect. I just want us to prove that this is about Christ and then hop back into the overarching theme that, that one of the ways that God depicts his relationship with his people is that he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. He uses other figures of speech. God is our father. We, is, we are his children. He is the king. We are the citizens. And I, I think, for me, the closest figure, I mean the most intimate, um, is that of a, of a husband to a wife. And I know ordinarily we think that the closest human relationship that could exist would be the, the relationship of a mother to a child, particularly if the child is natural born from the mother's womb, because then the child would be an amalgamation of the mother and the father. And we think there's no closer relationship However, the Bible, when it speaks about the business of marriage, uses the, the term one flesh, one sarks. And it's never spoken of, of the mother and the child, the father and the child as one flesh, even though it is an amalgamation, a mixture of the father and the mother and the child. I admit that. But the one flesh union is only in reference to marriage, to the first marriage, Adam and Eve, to our marriages, Ephesians chapter 5 and elsewhere, and then to Christ's marriage. And then it will even go from when we are married to Christ and we enjoy this one flesh where he's the head, we are the body. That's how close it is. It will even say not only are we one flesh, we're one spirit. Now, just as an aside, if you say, what about when people are one flesh with a prostitute? It doesn't use the term one flesh for prostitute. It's only for the wife. So the husband becomes one flesh with the wife. The wife becomes one flesh, one sarks. And it's a different word in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
So when he says, don't become your one flesh with your wife, therefore don't become one soma with a prostitute, with a pornea. So it's a different thing. I don't want to take myself too far afield. But let me read the New Testament counterpart that will show us that Psalm 45 is about Christ. The Holy Spirit says this is about Christ. Uh, Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 will quote Psalm 45, 6 and 7 in reference to Christ. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1. I'm going to take the whole passage. If you know the book of Hebrews, and I don't want to preach a sermon on the book of Hebrews. I've already done that. The book of Hebrews is, essentially, you can entitle it this, Christ is better, don't turn back. These Jewish Christians were tempted to go back, either to the types and shadows or to the perversion of Judaism that occurred at the time, which occurs today, Pharisaism. And so the writer to the Hebrews, which I think is Paul mostly, he's in, Holy Spirit obviously inspires, he says Christ is better than Moses, he's better than David, he's better than, than, than Aaron, he's better than the Levitical priest, he's better, better than the angels, he's better, stay with Christ. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. If Christ is not God, that would be blasphemy. He is the exact representation of his nature. He's not an image bearer like us. He's God come in the flesh. Exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. That's Christ. This is, um, this is, uh, this is omnipotence. When, having made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We've already looked at the ascension and session of Christ having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you again. I will be a father to him, he shall be a son to me. That's Psalm 2. And, um, and then when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, all the angels of God, what's that next phrase? Worship him. Worship him. There are some difficult things associated with what I just read. But what's not difficult is God says about God the Son, worship him. God the Father says to the holy angels concerning God the Son, worship my Son. The Son is God in the flesh. In the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire, but of the Son. So eight, this is 8 and 9. 8 and 9 is going to quote Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Here's the quote. But of the Son, he says, the Father, your throne, O God, is forever. This is, Psalm, this is like Psalm 110. My Lord said to my Lord, Jehovah or Yahweh said to my Adonai, here is God the Father calling the Lord Jesus Christ Theos, Elohim in the Hebrew, God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companion, companions. So Psalm 45 clearly is in reference to Jesus Christ. We're not guessing at this. We're not playing fast and loose. This isn't smoke or mirrors. The Bible is clear on this. And so now back to our overarching theme, which is clearly some kind of marriage song or marriage psalm. And we're arguing, because the Bible teaches us, that this is Christ married to his church. And I referenced, this is not a new concept. So we believe in, as Reformed Christians, we believe that there is a continuity of theme in redemptive history running from Genesis at least 3.15 to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. It's about Christ. 
and God's promise to save a people out of the estate of misery into a state of salvation uh, in Christ the Savior. And so not every passage is John 3.16. That's not what I mean. But there's a continuity of theme. There's one people. There's one plan. I know there's difference administration from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I understand that. The New Testament's more spiritually administered and, and, and this, the Holy Spirit's given more profusely and those kind of things. Yes, that's true. But we see very similar themes from old to new, which again shows the continuity, the unity of the, the harmony of the Bible. So many of us, if you've ever, if you go to a Christian marriage, if it's a Christian girl wanting to get married and she's allowed to pick her, song, her hymns, uh, her text to get married in the sermonette, she usually picks 1 Corinthians 13 or Ephesians 5. And um, if she's a Bible Christian girl of some stripe, I'm not saying that's the only one. Maybe she'll pick through in Psalm 45. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, which I'll read in just a bit, is Christ is the head and the, the husband of the church. It's, it's very common. But the Bible tells us in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16, this is the same thing. That's why I referenced this morning um, that the Bible says for believers in the Old Testament, they could only marry in the Lord. Jews were only required to marry Jews. It wasn't racial, it was religious. In the New Testament epoch, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 18, it says we can't be unequally yoked. So the Christian boy or girl has to marry a Christian boy or girl. And by the way, boys marry girls and girls marry boys. But th- there you go. Ezekiel 16. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. You're both Canaanites, and here are two different tribes. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut, you were not washed with water or cleansing, you're not rubbed with salt, you're not wrapped in cloths, no eyes look with pity on you, you're, any of these things. No one had compassion. In other words, you're unclean. You come from an unclean people, you're an unclean child, you're pitched out in the dirt, no one wanted you. I passed by, you're squirming in your blood. I said to you, while you are in your blood, live. Just as an aside, this is one of the reasons, I know there is a, I I don't think it's reconcilable, the divine sovereignty of God, obviously divine, and the human responsibility of man. We believe in the total depravity of God, but we also believe in the responsibility of men to, to repent and believe. And God is utterly sovereign and utterly righteous to hold people to repent and believe, even though they're dead in their sins and trespasses. I can't reconcile that. And the Bible says essentially to a person who's dead, live. That's God's business. Our business is to say to people, in the name of Christ, live. In the name of the Lord God, dry bones, live. It's the Holy Spirit's job to make those effectual in the lives. Of the... So I don't, I don't pretend to be able to reconcile that. If, uh, if J.I. Packer cannot reconcile that, he says it's a divine mystery, uh, I'm with Packer. And, and then the text goes on to say, Then you grew and became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were four and your hair had grown. You were naked and bare. I passed by you. I saw you. It was the time for love. I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I swore and entered into a covenant with you. You became mine. He married her. God married his people. Then it goes on to say, I put a bracelet on you. I beautified you. I made you beautiful. It's off, it starts off saying in reference to the, and you're going to see it later in Psalm 45, 
The Psalm, Psalm 45 will say, the husband is beautiful. We don't usually use the term beautiful in reference to men, but he, here's you're beautiful. And then in reference to the bridegroom, uh, excuse me, the bride, you're beautiful. The husband is called beautiful. The bride is called beautiful. The beauty of the bride, which we're going to get there, is given to her by the husband. Naturally, she's not beautiful. Most of us husbands, myself included, when we looked at our wives, when they were not our wives, we said, she is beautiful to me. I want to make her last name my last name because she's beautiful. Um, But that's not what God did for us in Christ. When he looked at us, he didn't see anything beautiful in us. Um, Actually, the beauty that he sees in us is a reflection of his own beauty. So the Bible says in Ezekiel 16 that God is married to his people. Remember I, I referenced that the Bible teaches by express statements and by necessary consequence. If I... If I called someone an adulteress or an adulterer, what does that necessarily imply or require about that individual, that they're married? So I don't want to to um, make anyone feel squeamish. So if you're single and you commit sexual uncleanness, that is usually referenced with the word porneia. But if you are a married person and commit sexual uncleanness, it can be porneia, and then it can also be moikeia is the Greek. And that shows that it's a married person. And, and then it's an aggravation of sin because that person is in a covenantal relationship with another human being, with their spouse, the spouse of their youth. And so one, um, our larger catechism 151 deals with the aggravation of sin. And so if you call someone an adulteress or an adulterer, it implies that they're married. In the book of Isaiah, God calls his people an adulteress. What, what book would you go to in the Old Testament where God said, oh, oh, okay, who's it's? Go marry who's it's and pick a girl that's a who's it's and call your kids Loami and Loruhama. I think it's uh, go marry Gomer. And imagine marrying a girl named Gomer. I would always think Gomer Pyle. Uh, but you have the, the book of Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah. God says t- to Israel, you're an adulteress, which means she's a faithless wife. She's broken faith with him. And in reference to, to, to um, Israel, what was the sin for which God pre- predominantly called them an adulteress? What was the, pro- the, the main sin? It was idolatry. They, they could not get enough of idol gods. They couldn't get enough of carnal worship. This is a Colossians chapter 2. It's like 23 through 24. Spiritual worship, worshiping God in spirit and truth. John chapter 4, 23 and 24. Oh, people, they do not like that. The simplicity of worship, psalms, hymns, words, sacrament. They don't like it. You do false this and that. You will need a shoehorn because it's titillating uh, to the flesh. There's nothing new under the sun. The book of James, in James chapter 4, God, the Holy Spirit, inspires James to call the New Testament Christian that's living like a heathen, you what? Adulteress. You adulteress. It is meant to prick the heart of the unfaithful wife, us. Look at the husband that you're sinning against and repent and reform. Then in the New Testament, Epoch, I've already referenced it. I, I, have, I quote this passage all the time. I love studying what the Bible has to say on marriage our earthly marriages, and then our marriage to Christ. Ephesians uh, 5.23. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He himself is the savior of the body. 
But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives also be to their husbands at everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if you're a husband here tonight and say, well, my wife has to obey me in everything. Sure. Yep, she does. Everything without except sin. You can't tell her to rob a bank or and then she can tell you Acts 4 and Acts 5. Sorry, I have to obey God and not you. Go pound sand, Charlie. So there is a limitation to that, by the way. But the, the best way to get the wife to reverence and respect the husband is lover. Lover like Christ loves the church. You die to yourself and sacrifice yourself for, for your wife. You're going to see a wife that will respect you, I, I, generally speaking. And so he gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Just as an aside, we're doing a Sunday school series on, um, on uh, family worship, household worship. And I was arguing this morning that the family is the first instructor in religion. When I mean family, the basic unit is the husband and the wife, even before kiddos come. Husbands and wives who are Christians should, with some measure of regularity, strive for a measure of of worship. If if our marital relation is to be considered religiously as a mirror of Christ in the church, and we're not using it religiously, it's a sin of omission, uh, in commission as well, but mainly omission. Um, and so we should be worshiping. And the husband should, especially because he's the leader, labor to aid in your wife's sanctification into her practical improvement into the image of Jesus. Uh, now, um, when we come here to the business of marriage, if you, who here wants to be an OPC minister? I'm going to give you your OPC minister exam one question. Usually there's about 180 questions, but I'll give you the first question. It won't be the first question out of the gate, but it'll be one of them. One of the questions of all men that come to be licensed and then ordained in the OPC ministry is what is marriage? What is marriage? And so some people are keen to say, well, marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, I understand that. But now you're talking parties of marriage. I I don't mean parties of you jump the gun. What is marriage? And then a lot of times the men will will say something like this: Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. The Bible says in the book of uh, Malachi, "Remember the wife of your youth. The wife of your covenant is a covenant." This is the whole who gives this woman, and I I swear it is a covenant. And you see it with the covenanting ceremony. But a lot of times guys won't explain the covenant. And they just pass over it. It sounds very religious, but with no further explanation. So we don't, we don't really know. And then it becomes just a social contract. That's why you can boys and boys and girls and girls and cats and cats. It's just a social contract between men. But, but that, 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 that's not what God says. I believe the essence of what a marriage... Just as, a, as an aside, if you study it from the Reformed perspective, at least the Reformed Presbyterian perspective... Chapter 25 is on the church and the confession. Chapter 24, chapter 24, excuse me, is on marriage. Even our own confession. I I hate to criticize my own confession because it's an absolutely phenomenal document. Um, It doesn't open with a definition of marriage. In chapter 24, paragraph 1, it says marriage is between a man and a woman. They do exactly what... I wish they wouldn't do, because if you're trying to get at the basics, the basics, the basics, they jump over it and get right to the parties. Why would they do that in the 1600s? Why? Because no one questioned it. If you've ever tried to study the business of marriage, like really study it, from a magisterial reformer or an English Puritan, it's pretty hard. 
They didn't deal with what we deal with, with the dissolution of marriage and, and so on, uh, because it was illegal, at least in Elizabethan England until like the 1800s and something. So they, they just assume that everyone knows. I, I think even our own confession does that. The language that the Bible uses for what is marriage is a one flesh union or a one flesh bond. That's what that is. So with earthly marriages, we have a one flesh bond. In our spiritual marriage to the Lord Jesus, which is being depicted thematically in Psalm 45, we have a one flesh bond or a one flesh union relationship with God. And then flowing out of the union is what we would refer to as the communion, the friendship. We're joined mystically, spiritually, one flesh to Christ, and then we enjoy a friendship. Now, as regards to earthly marriages, there are many people that have different views on what the flesh, one flesh is. I do not believe, even though I have a very well-meaning professor in seminary that told me this is what it was, I told him to his face that it was nonsense because I was graduated with our, and I was already a reverend, and so I could. I said it respectfully. Um, he said it's the conjugal relationship. That's ridiculous to me. It's utterly ridiculous. Cats can have a conjugal relationship, and I don't mean to be impious, but that makes no sense. So it's the conjugal relationship, so it, how long does the one flesh last? It just it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. God creates the two into one, so it's not even textually correct. Sometimes even well-meaning Christians, we hear a thing. Oh, the, the answer to that question is just this. And uncritically, unthinkingly, with the scripture, we just parrot whatever we've heard. Does that make sense? It's better... Is, this is why it's helpful sometimes to, to, to read beyond our, our, our comfort zone and have other people, other Christians, real Christians, who really read the Bible, go, we don't hold that view. We hold this view. And then try to interact with that. Maybe they're right and maybe we're wrong. So I believe that this one flesh is the essence of the union that we and Christ in, enjoy. This is the whole notion of... Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, in, in Matthew 19, Christ takes the two people and makes us into one new person. So the husband is the head, and then the wife is the body, or the heart, or something like that. So one person, one new person. It's not that we're a monad, that we, he's amalgamated two human beings physically. That would be grotesque. We, we are two individuals, but we're bound into one common life. And so all of these things are applicable to what we enjoy in Jesus Christ. When you think of the traditional marriage vows, when I perform a, a marriage, I don't let the couple tell me what the vows, to, to, and I'm not saying this is a pain in the neck. If the couple says, you have to do these vows, and they're not the traditional vows, I'll say, hey, I love you. If you're Christians, I love you in the Lord, but you need another guy. I only do the traditional because I think they are scriptural. So if you were to think about the traditional marriage vows, which depict this business, this a divine union, a, a, a union of, uh, of God's, not, he, he divinely established it, he divinely uh, uh, um, continues it, and he's going to divinely uh, purify it and advance it. The end of our, our life is, is a marriage feast, uh, and the two shall become one flesh. This is why I don't think it's the conjugal union. And I don't think the minister is not doing it. Sometimes people think, oh, I'm going to get married at the church rather than justice of the peace. There's extra power in my marriage. If you think that, that's not true. If you think that, show me in the Bible because it's not there. 
So there is no place in the Bible that shows any minister, any stripe marrying any human being. It's just not there. We're just deriving certain principles. The minister in an earthly marriage is an earthly, is a, is a earthly fiduciary. I'm helping you take your vows before God. So the husband and the wife are not making themselves one flesh by their own uh, covenantal vows. The minister is not making them one flesh by administering the vows. It, it, God is mystically, instantly doing it. It's not a process. When, when the two shall become one flesh, which is the essence of our marriage to Christ and to our wives, it, 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 sometimes people say, well, the two shall become one flesh. It's a process. Like over time, you can finish each other's sentence. That is true. Like I told my wife today, she was going to say something, and I said, I could have refinished it. And of course, she can read my brain. Most wives look at their husbands, and they know instantly. That's true. But that's the communion aspect of the one flesh union. So when we think of Christ being married to the church, us being his bride, it, it is divine. It's gracious. He, he has done it. Um, and so it is, it is a divine union. Um, the Bible will use, I used to know where it was. I'll, I'll get it in probably four o'clock in the morning. It uses the Hebrew word for kin. This is why I think the relationship of the husband and wife is even closer before God closer than, than parent to child. Um, we're one new family. When you get married, your wife is your family, your husband's your family, and the closest of kin. When we're married to Christ, it's the closest relationship. I often t- tell young guys, the generation, I- I'm getting old, but the, genera- the younger generation, guys have pals with girls. In my generation, maybe I was a barbarian, we didn't have like pals that were girls. Guys had guy friends, and they tried to date all the girls. But they weren't buddies. They didn't go hunting or fishing or palling around. It was palling around with guys, dating girls. But the younger kids, I'm not picking on anybody, the guys have pals with girls, and the girls have pals with guys. I think this is a dangerous business myself. If you get married, you should stop that process right away. If you're a married Christian guy, you have a pal. It's your wife, (laughs) and she's your closest friend in the whole world in Jesus. That makes sense? And so our closest friend in the whole world is our husband Christ. And next to, as Christian people, and next to Jesus as our closest, most intimate heart friend in all the world, and for me, is my wife. And you, for a husband, is your wife. For you as a wife, is your husband. So it's, it's, a, it's a divine union. And then in this, again, we're just looking at this thematically, Christ being married to the church, not only is it a divine union, it's an exclusive union. I don't want to get too far afield with the business of polygamy and, and sequential uh, polygamy, whether it's, uh, whether it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's a, a polygamy with many at one time or sequential many in, in a series. Uh, what we're looking at with, with Christ in the church, our, our marriage to Jesus, it's an exclusive. Um, it's an exclusive. Uh, I've mentioned this many times before. My dad was a traditionalist Catholic. He had a traditionalist Catholic view. You may argue that it wasn't a view, um, a biblical view. Even our own confession says that my father would be wrong uh, because for the case of Pornea, you could sue for a divorce and treat the person as if dead and remarry. My father did not hold that view, but I was raised with his view. And his view was death. You said death, it's death. 
That was his view. That phrase, till death do us part, the divine plan for marriage is to, is to last for life. But the divine plan in Christ with our marriage, it is for life. There's no breaking it. It's an exclusive, permanent union. It never goes away. Can we sin against our glorious, beautiful husband? Yes. Does he ever send us away? Sometimes, in the, and I'm thinking in the book of um, Isaiah, maybe chapter 3, maybe Jeremiah chapter 3, when God sends his wife away, in Hebrew, to divorce is to send a wife away. In the Old Testament, the wife couldn't send the husband away. And I'm sure she could do it the old-fashioned way. And he could send her away. So there's a way around everything. In Greek, it's afi It means to send away. So when God sent his wife away, did he remarry another? No. He chastised her, and then he brought her back. This is Hosea chapter 2. But this isn't a marriage on divorce and remarriage. My only point with that is this. Our marriage to Christ is exclusive. It's one man and one woman forever and ever and ever. It's one Christ and one people forever and ever and ever and ever. He, he, he's not going to divorce us. He's not going to send us away. When we're faithless, he's going to chastise us. He's ever faithful. There's nothing we can do to sin away the union that we enjoy with Jesus. I will never, ever, ever believe that we could lose our salvation. I just read a, a, a religious treatise on this the other day, on losing your salvation. I will never believe it. You'll never talk me out of it. That means Christ loses sheep, and he doesn't lose any sheep. And, and it's that union, that two shall become one flesh, and it's till death do us part. It's an exclusive the other thing when we come here, I'm kind of a love squishy. I'm very sentimental. I'm very nostalgic. The older I'm getting, I'm boy, howdy, I'm getting, oh, it's just ridiculous. I don't know what's happening to me. I'm like, I'm going to be reading Anne of Green Gables the next thing I need. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. This is a love song. And be, oh, you're going to get all, I thought you were a Presbyterian. This is a love song. And notice the heart of the bride for the bridegroom and the heart of the, uh, of, of the bridegroom for the bride. The bride says to the, the bridegroom, you're beautiful, you're lovely. And then it describes all of the, the excellencies that the bride sees in, in, the, um, in the bridegroom. And then the, bride, the bridegroom says to the bride, and you're lovely within, you're lovely out. And I've said concerning my wife, you're both beautiful inside and you're beautiful outside. That's what Christ says to the church. You're beautiful inside, you're beautiful outside. And it says, it, it's, my, it's a heart of devotion. I believe love is an emotion. Love is a feeling, an affection. And I don't mean feeling like this. I mean heart feeling. And I know some people say love is a decision. Um, because of love, you do make decisions. I love you, therefore I'm going to covenant with you. I love you, therefore I swear to God you're only mine for life till death do us part. The love is the thing. You can make lots of decisions, and even good decisions, without a heart of love. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I know people say, well, feelings go up and down. So do decisions. I mean, you you can't get out of that conundrum. What we're looking at here are are the participants in the marriage. They're madly in love with one another. Like, madly in love. You know what I mean. If you've ever been madly in love, you're like, ooh, what is this feeling? That. That's what I mean. Well, Pastor John, I that that's not very proper. Well, it's very biblical. And I know sometimes, well, Buttercup, don't ever have that warm, squishy feeling of like, I can't believe, look at that guy. No, you don't. I see, sometimes I see this. And I think it's, it's wrong, according to, the, to the, the tenor of this song. 
here's my 67 check sheets for finding a husband or a wife. Check. They're not allergic to work. Girls, if you're going to marry a boy, make sure he's not allergic to work because you're going to not be allergic to, you'll be not, you'll be working. But it's not that. When we're looking at this, what has, what wife here would want a relationship with her husband that was clinical? I love you. Haven't you ever read the marriage document? I'm going to work. I'll be in the garage. She doesn't think you love her. What husband doesn't want his wife's heart for him? The wife is jealous for the, for the husband's glory. The wife is extolling all the excellencies of her husband. That's love. Passionate love. Now, does the love of... And remember, this is a marriage ceremony. If the, if the marriage is cold and clinical as you're getting ready to walk up to the altar, there's something bad wrong. Now, you could say, well, after 37 years, I'm, we've been married almost 30. Uh, no, 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 no. You should be more in love, more in love. And don't, I don't even go for all this business if I don't have the warm gushy after 47 because I'm, it, just, it just changes. I don't know about that. There was a guy here, and he went to Gloria last year, and his wife went to Gloria a couple of years ago. And he told me, he said, I love Mary more now, 60-something years later than when I got married to her. Here's an old man that said about my wife, I, I can't believe how much I love her. That's this. And the other thing that love does in reference to this marriage to Christ is the wife is looking at the husband and saying, you're beautiful. The husband is looking at the wife and saying, you're beautiful. It's, it's, it's mutually acknowledging the graces, the gifts, the beauties, the excellencies of the marriage partner. So when I looked at my wife, she's beautiful to me. I don't care. It doesn't... If you're a husband or you're looking at a girl and say, that girl's for me, I'm going to marry that girl. It doesn't matter what your 10 friends think about your girl. Who cares? They're not wanting to marry her. And they, Well, look at her. Her eyebrow goes like this and whatever. Who cares what you think? I'm not looking at her eyebrows anyways. She's beautiful to me. And the hus- and the wa- Remember the exclusive union. So we're not taking a poll. What do you think? What do you- no, we don't care what you think. And it's with the eyes of faith. The, the Christian looks at Christ and says, you're beautiful to me, you're lovely to me, you're excellent, I love your righteousness. Why? Because faith, it's all true. We can see beauties in, the, in, in our Savior that the unbeliever can't. And then, and then Christ says, and I love how he says you're beautiful within. And I referenced the, the brother who said, my wife after 60 years, I'm more in love with her. And he referenced, he said, now physically, life has beaten the, the, the tar out of us. Physically, I reference something. I'm doing all these health things I'm doing and I watch the internet and do all these health things. It's nuts. I'm completely nuts. And so there are people on the internet like eat this way and eat that way and when you're 95, you're going to beat 1 Corinthians 15. You're not going to be sown in dishonor. No one is beating 1 Corinthians 15. No one. You can eat carrots. You can be as skinny as me. You're not beating 1 Corinthians 15. So if you live to 90, you're not, it's not going to look like you're 15. I don't care what you do with your, with, with your health and take care of your health. So when he says, you're beautiful within. Beloved, let's apply that. He's looking at the, the excellencies that he's placed within us, but let's apply that to our earthly marriages. We should find our wives beautiful inwardly. Their holiness, their love of Christ, their love of us, the love of our children, their godly example, their chastity, all of these things 
should be attractive to us. And, and then what we find here is that the couple expresses it. I sometimes say to young men who are married, do you pray with your wife? No, 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 pray with my wife. <laughs> do you tell your wife you love her? Well, I said once. I told her I loved her once. What's wrong with you? Tell her you love her all the time. Hug her all the time. When you come in from work, kiss her when you walk in the door. What's wrong with you? Right here, this guy writes a song of love. And beloved, the, the, the very... You think, well, well, Pastor, no. Am I not right? Is this not two people that are madly in love with one another? It is not wrong. It's not wrong. I've been in communities in the Tallahassee Church where they, they highly discourage the whole business of um, love, love. The mother and the father say this is a good, good deal, and the boy looks like he'll make some money or whatever, and the girl looks like whatever, and they say, therefore, let's make this, um, this arrangement. I'm, I'm not entirely against some of those things. Do you love the person? Love, love them. Do you find them beautiful? Do you find them delightful? Do you find Christ delightful? Um, and then I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to quit, I promise. <laughs> I'm having an ocular migraine as we speak, so let's see if I can make it through. Revelation 19.6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, now listen to this. This is you. This is me in Christ. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, right, these words are true. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the church coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride to one for her husband. Beloved believer in Jesus Christ, you are married to Christ. He's clothed you with his own robes of righteousness. Let's, as his bride, labor with all that's in us to live a life which is worthy of our worthy husband. Amen. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.